people in this room that have been coming to this church for longer than I've been alive. Uh, and there are some people who are new and have come over the summer, so I want to introduce myself to you. If you're new, I haven't been here for two months. I'm Bronwyn Lee. I'm the pastor of Discipleship and Women, and I get the honor of saying, hi, welcome. It's good to see you. It's good to be the gathered people of God in his presence, is it not? Welcome online. You are gathered in the presence of God. We're glad to be together today. Um, We want to hear from you. Lots of stuff is changing as the school year begins, as we get ready for the college here to start up. Um, If you haven't visited fbcdavis.org for a while, go ahead and do yourself a favor and do that. Because the things that are happening in the next couple of weeks and months are on the website. You can remember fbcdavis.org or you can scan this handy QR code, and it'll take you there. But we would love you to know what's going on, how you can plug in, answer your questions, pray for you if you have any requests, help you get plugged in. All that and more available at your fingertips, or at least in your phone's scan zone. Um, Or you can stop by at the welcome table just outside the sanctuary, introduce yourself, not only see us, but be seen by us so that we can connect. We want to do that. I get to tell you two of the fun things that we have going on this morning. Are you ready? No, I didn't hear you. You ready? Yes. Okay. Did you get this little handy-dandy flyer as you came in? If you didn't, you can grab one on the way out. But here are the cheat notes. Next week, we are doing a baptism service. You guys, these are my favorite Sundays. I love baptism service. And if you will indulge me just for a few seconds to go on a nerdy word expedition, I want to tell you something cool that I discovered this week that uh, the Bible has two different words that it uses for baptism. And if you want to understand the uh, difference between the two, there is a first century pickling recipe. Yes, you heard me. A pickling recipe that uses both and helps us understand. It is a recipe for how to turn cucumbers into pickles. The first instruction tells us to dip dip your cucumber in water. That's the word bapto, which uh, in like Luke is where Abraham has to dip his cooling... Uh, Lazarus dips his finger in water to cool, you know, in that parable from Jesus. You know, just a little dip-dip in water. But then after you've, you know, washed your, your cucumber, then you get to dunk, dip, baptize it, baptizo. That's the word that we use for baptism. In vinegar, and it goes in a cucumber, and it comes out a pickle. Right. This is very cool because it tells us something really important about what baptism means. It's not about whether you sprinkle or dip. That's a conversation for another time. What it tells us is that when you baptizo something, when you baptize it, it changes the nature of a thing. It changes the nature of a thing. You can dip something and it goes in a cucumber and it comes out a a cucumber. But when you baptize it, it goes in one thing and it comes out a pickle. And when we get baptized... Uh, Yeah, go ahead, fill in the blanks. You can get pickled for Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. (laughs) What I'm saying is that this thing that we do in water represents that we are transformed people. We come out different after being baptized into Jesus than we were before. We were dead and now we were alive. We were enemies and now we're reconciled with Jesus. And when we go through baptism, what we do is we represent that we believe that some change has really happened And it's exciting. Yes? If you haven't been baptized, but you have in fact been pickled by Jesus, we would love 
to baptize you and celebrate that with you. We're doing that next Sunday straight after the service. If you would like to be baptized, get in touch with me, get in touch with Neil, scan your QR code. On the back of your cheat sheet is everybody on staff and the church board's email address. Get in touch with one of us. We want to talk to you about the transformation that happens in Jesus and how we can share that with the world. Okay. Um, If you're a kiddo in here, good news. Sunday school these days, as of today, is all happening in children's ministry. So if you're a kiddo and you're meant to be in Sunday school, uh, Steve will help you find your way to your class. But looks like most people already got the memo before they got in. That's cool. Okay. Then I also, just because we're a church family and we want to be transparent and honest and share all things, want to give you a budget update. Um, I want to say thank you to those who faithfully, faithfully give to the work um, of the ministry of this church. It supports so much. We don't actually have a big building. We don't have a building overhead in this church. And so all the money that we give actually gets to go to real ministries. We get to support missionaries doing meaningful work all over the world. We get to support uh, the Rooted Young Adults Reach. We get to support college ministry. We get to support um, all sorts of things that help people grow in faith, love, and hope. And your giving helps make that happen. So thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, Update from year to date is we are only 10,000 behind. Um, If you've been listening over the last couple of weeks, this is actually good news. There's been a lot of generosity over the summer. Thank you. If you are back after the summer and you want to get plugged into supporting and partnering and gospel work, you can do that. But there's the update. Again, if you have questions about this, contact someone with the, on the email addresses on the back. Okay. School starts in Davis on Tuesday. If you didn't know that, this is your heads up. Plan extra time for traffic if you're driving anywhere on Tuesday morning. Um, Some of the schools in Dixon and Woodland have already gone back, but uh, as of Tuesday, I think everybody in our community will be back. So I want us to just take um, a minute, and it's going to be short. Um, Would you pray for the kids, teachers, administrators, staff, maybe your neighborhood school, maybe someone you know going to school? Would you take a second to pray for our schools as we start off? And I'll close this um, up with that. Father, transitions can be hard, even if they're exciting. And as uh, our local school district joins uh, other school districts in returning to school on Tuesday, we pray for your protection, your presence, your goodness to watch over us. We pray for our teachers, support staff, principals, administrators, the paraeducators. We pray for students stepping onto brand new campuses for them. Everyone is stepping into a brand new classroom for them. We pray for anxious hearts, parents, sending our beloved kids off to school. Jesus, be with us. Help us to trust you through this. And we pray that you would do good in and through us, in students, in staff, in classrooms and schools throughout our district in the school year. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for praying with us. Okay. Um, I'm sorry, folks online, that you can't do this right now, but humorous, maybe send someone a text. Uh, I am going to invite you to turn around and say hello to some people around you because we don't just come to church to see, right? Part of the, the joy of the embodied gathering is being seen. 
So I want to give you a minute to turn around and don't just greet the person you came with, please. See somebody else. If you don't know their name, ask them their name. Give the gift of eye contact and warmth, and then we'll settle down and listen to the sermon. Let's have you return to your seats. Okay, my goal here was to have you chat for just long enough that the introverts among you who didn't want to move and were just waiting for this moment to be over to get uncomfortable and actually have to say hello. (laughs) And uh, just long enough also for you to start a conversation that you thought, oh, we were just getting started. Good, I wanted you to feel that way. So that afterwards you can pick it up where you started. See? Sneaky, right? So sneaky. Okay. Uh, We are going to hear the scriptures read to us by Mike, and then Neil is going to come up and preach to us. Mike. Psalm 130. My soul waits for the Lord, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities... O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For the Lord... For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. My name is Neil. I'm the adult and family pastor here, and it's my uh, privilege to open up the scriptures with you this morning. Psalm 130, if you have a a Bible you want to pull out on your phone, go ahead and do that. Or there's a blue Bible in the chair rack uh, next to you or in front of you. Um, Psalms are pretty easy to find. You just open your Bible to uh, the approximate middle and you'll hit the Psalms. And then it's Psalm 130. Did you hear that line that Mike read? My soul waits more than watchmen wait for the morning. Waiting is hard. Let's try it for 60 seconds. Right now, okay? I'd I'd ask the text to put up a 60-second countdown timer for us, but then we'd all be counting and not waiting. Um, So instead, I'm going to ask the team in the booth just to give me a wave when 60 seconds is up. And we're just going to sit here and wait. Is 60 seconds too long? Should we do 30 seconds instead? What do you guys want to do? 30 seconds? 60 seconds. I hear two minutes out there. Can I get five minutes? Can we get... Okay. Um, 30 seconds? Oh my... Okay, 60. We're doing 60. Can you look at your watch? 60 seconds. You ready? Set. Let's wait.
says, I got the wave. I got the wave, people. Wait is, the wait is over. Waiting is hard. Sometimes we don't have a choice to wait. Like when I was driving up out of Lake Tahoe at the all-church camp out a couple weekends ago in a long line of cars stuck behind an RV going so slow, waiting is hard. But sometimes we choose to wait. Many of us choose to fast on a regular basis as a sign that our hunger for change in the world can only be satisfied by God himself. And it's hard as we see meal after meal pass by as we wait to break our fast. Waiting is hard. But it's even harder to wait when you're where the psalmist is. In Psalm 130, in the depths. Do you know what that's like? The depths are about as bad as it can get for the psalmist. In the ancient Near East, the depths refer to the chaotic, dangerous ocean waters that people go down into and they rarely come out. The psalmist is using this poetic language to describe the worst situations. It's oddly comforting, though, to know that the authors of the Bible get us. If you're in the depths, the psalmists get you. Psalm 69 says, I sink in the deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters and the floods sweep over me. Psalm 130 verse 1, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. It's hard to wait when you're in the depths. We're going to go real deep, real quick here. And I know you might not have expected a kind of intense sermon on this beautiful August Sunday, but it's where the psalm is taking us, and so we're going in, hold on to something. And next Sunday, next Sunday is going to be all joy. It's Psalm 150, I promise It'll be joyful. But here we go with Psalm 130 and the depths. When I was in grad school, I had a friend. Um, I became friends with this man whose wife left him because of some things that he had done to damage their relationship. He betrayed her trust, and she was crushed. He was crushed. He never imagined that all of this would happen to his life. And I never met his wife, and so I don't know the rest of her story, but I was involved in his story. His sin, his brokenness in his marriage was devastating to him. He was depressed. It was very difficult for him to keep going. His plan to become a pastor, shipwrecked. So he did what the psalmist did, and he waited He cried out to God. He especially cried out to God on long walks that he took home from the grad school. It was a 20-minute drive to his house, 40-minute bike ride if he rode, but he chose to walk all the way home, crying out to God, feeling his despair, wrestling with what he had done and what had happened to his life every day, walking the streets of Vancouver. Sometimes he would take what he called the long way home, and instead of just going straight, He would loop around way out of the way neighborhoods. It would take him over three hours to get home sometimes as he walked. He was in the depths, not sure what to do, waiting for God to do something. And in our preaching and practice uh, for the summer, we have been making the claim that the Psalms are a channel of our emotions. 
And today we're considering how a desperate cry from the depths, waiting for help, can channel our emotions to God. So let's take a closer look at this psalm. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. This psalm, it channels our emotion where? To God. To the God who can do something. From the very worst of our situations. It says, let your ear be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. You, O Lord, Lord, you hear me. Pay attention. I can imagine my friend walking these streets shouting out to God. I'm drowning here, God. I'm in a really bad situation. Real bad. There is no way out. And God, I am going down. Hear me. The depths. Let's talk a little bit more about the depths. To be sure, there are more than one way to go to the depths. Sometimes we're in the depths because of the actions of other people. As described in Psalm 28. If you're a note taker, you might want to write down Psalm 28 and take a look later. Sometimes we're in the depths because of larger cultural systems that oppress us. As described in Psalm 31. Sometimes we're in the depths because our external circumstances cause internal depression. As described in Psalm 42. But we're meditating on Psalm 130 this morning. So what's the reason in Psalm 130? The psalmist is in the depths, look at verse 3, because of his own iniquities. Iniquity. What does that mean? Well, there are three words used in the Bible to describe actions that reveal humans are broken and entangled in evil. The words are sin, transgression, and iniquity. The Bible tells us in Genesis 1, And two, that our lives are designed for complete flourishing in our relationship with God. Complete flourishing in our relationship with other people and our own self-reflection on who we are. And complete flourishing in our relationship with all of creation. Every word, every action, every thought we have builds towards complete flourishing in all these relationships. But sin, transgression, and iniquity break down this flourishing and entangle us in evil. Sin. Sin is an archery term. It means to miss the mark. Any hobby archers out here in the congregation? Hobby archers? Yeah, my sister, my sister-in-law is a hobby archer. And if, and if you and if she were shooting arrows in the ancient Near East uh, and you missed your target, it's called a sin. We sin whenever we miss the target that we're designed for. And our lives are designed for flourishing. And Paul, one of the brilliant first century theologians who wrote half of the New Testament, he observes that everyone has sinned. He writes that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory God designed us for. Whenever we miss the mark of complete flourishing, we sin. Another word used in the Bible to describe evil actions is transgression. Transgression means to cross the line. Whenever we cross the line, intentionally or unintentionally, we cross that line that says, thou shalt not. We transgress. Transgress steps outside of the realm of thoughts and words and actions that bring flourishing and they bring harm instead. 
And Jesus challenged the unjust religious leaders that, of his day that took advantage of marginalized people by asking them, he says in Matthew 15, why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your traditions? And just as an aside, as Jesus critiques unjust laws, if there are any laws that transgress God's plan for all people to flourish, these laws should be changed, should they not? And finally, iniquity. It's the worst of the three words. There's no room to claim that you weren't good enough to hit the target or you just didn't realize that you crossed the line. Iniquity has intention built into it. The root word for iniquity means to warp, to twist, to purposefully turn away from God and embrace evil. Iniquity is the joker in Gotham City. Iniquity is the Ku Klux Klan and other radicalized groups in America. And surprisingly, in Psalm 130, iniquity is the individual bent away from God in our own thoughts, our words, and our actions that entangle us and others in evil. The psalmist points to his own heart and says, here, even here, there's iniquity. The Bible is full of stories of people committing iniquity, and these stories serve as a mirror for us to check our own hearts. I think of the people in Israel in, at, at the base of Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 32. God has guided these people. He has cared for them. He has done miracle after miracle after miracle to save them. And at the base of the mountain, they get kind of impatient. Why do they get impatient? Because they've been waiting They've been waiting for God to do the next big thing, and he's not doing it. And so Aaron, the priest, their religious leader, he makes some animal statues for them. These statues that were popular in other countries to worship, and they worship those things instead. But don't we do the same? Whenever we get tired of waiting for God to show up in our lives, we devote ourselves to our cultural gods for comfort. I think of the book of Judges. Have you ever read the book of Judges? Like the whole book? It's <laughs> towards the end of the book. There is so much iniquity. I'm not even comfortable talking about it from the microphone. It's despicable. But what's also shocking is to realize that we do things. We've thought things that we wouldn't be comfortable naming from the microphone either. Despicable things. We wouldn't want anybody to know that we're thinking. And I think of the story of David uh, raping Bathsheba. The story is told in 2 Samuel chapter 11. David, he sees a woman bathing. This woman is married to a man named Uriah who is in David's army and Uriah is away at war. So David abuses his power as king and forces Bathsheba to come to his palace and he rapes her and he sends her back home. He thinks the relationship is over. But he finds out that he got her pregnant. So David tries to cover it up. He brings Uriah back from war. He gets him drunk, and he tries to coerce him to sleep with his wife. But on principle that he shouldn't go home to his wife while his comrades are at war, Uriah refuses. What does David do? David arranges for Uriah to be sent back to war to the most dangerous part of the battle, and then for the rest of the fighters to pull back so that Uriah dies. An ancient Near Eastern political cover-up 
of iniquity. You think your sin is bad? David's is bad. David thinks he's in the clear. He won't get caught. And he doesn't. Until God sends a whistleblower. The prophet Nathan, who by divine insight goes right into the courtyard in front of David's officials and all the people there. And he accuses David of adultery, of murder, and of abuse of power. And David is in the depths of iniquity. Now God has a deep heart for the marginalized people. And so he cares for Bathsheba and he blesses her. And God is a just God. And so David's experience, David experiences the consequences of his iniquity. In fact, David's iniquity puts Israel's path toward almost total destruction because of what he started. However, David knows what I know and what you know. That God is a forgiving God. God is a forgiving God. God And so right there in the courtroom, David cries out to God in all of his iniquity. And he goes on to write these words in Psalm 51. Hear this. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. The Bible is full of people who commit iniquity. But what about people today? What about, what about me? What about you? In the Gospels, Jesus clears up any question we might have about what counts as iniquity. Anytime, Jesus says, anytime you keep hatred in your heart, Jesus says, or you condemn somebody as a fool and write them off, Iniquity. Anyone who lusts and keeps lusting. Iniquity. Anyone who does not love their enemy. Anyone who brags. Anyone who worries. You're caught up in sin, transgression, and iniquity. You're turning away from the God you can trust. Do you know what that's like? Psalm 130. The whole thing. You have it in front of you. I've shoved it onto this slide right here. In Psalm 130, we sit here in the depths of our own guilty hearts. Just waiting for God to lift us up with his steadfast love and his plentiful redemption. We're not going to wait another 60 seconds. But we need to pray this psalm because our culture says not to. We need to pray this psalm because our culture says not to. As we've thought about this psalm so far, have you been uncomfortable? Have you been starting to feel a little bit nervous? Like maybe part of you is recoiling from this kind of posture before God. I want to ignore my iniquity. Shh. If that's true of you, then let me present a hypothesis as to what's at the core of those feelings. Because while you might assume that your feelings of uncomfortability are that you feel uncomfortable because you know that you're so bad 
But if you were to face your transgression and your iniquity and your sin, you would be shamed and you'd be rejected by God and you'd be rejected by us. And by the way, the Bible clearly tells us that you will not be shamed. You will not be rejected. But more on that later. But my hypothesis is that the reason we're so averse to this psalm is because we've been formed by a majority culture to which the kind, this kind of psalm is foreign and it's dangerous. The openness, the honesty, the clear-eyed lament of one's own darkness and the beautiful hope that God is going to do something about it, it's just not acceptable in our culture. You see, our culture says cover up. Live with a photo filter, culture says. You're fine. You're fantastic. Embrace yourself. No worries. We live in a culture that has a powerful, you're okay narrative. Even if you're not okay, because it's okay to not be okay. But Christianity says come clean. Christianity offers a much different narrative. You're not okay. I'm not okay. Seriously. No one is. We're all trapped in this web of sin and transgression and iniquity that's been toxifying our world for millennia. Face it. You're not okay. Christianity says come clean. It's traditionally called confession. It means to face your okayness and then to tell another person about it. Theology professor and psychologist Janiqua Walker-Barnes comments on the contrast between American cover-up and Christian confession. She writes this. She says, confession names our complicity and with and repentance from sin in light of our understanding of God's grace and forgiveness. When we confess, we name our specific sins. This means, of course, that we must know what our sins are. Well, that seems as if it should be an easy task. Modern, it is difficult for most people in the United States. Modern culture has a strong aversion to claiming responsibility for one's behavior. It's a trait that crosses generations, socioeconomic classes, races, and genders. This becomes obvious when we examine how we talk about our mistakes. Popular language in the United States has evolved in such a way that we overwhelmingly use passive language and omit subjectivity when we talk about our errors. The vase broke. There was collateral damage. I'll be honest, mistakes were made. Contrast that with, yeah, I broke the vase. I made this mistake and yeah, I I did that thing. So give up pretending you're okay and pray Psalm 130. You know, culture says that you'll be canceled. But Christianity says, you'll be welcomed in. When people's sins, transgressions, and iniquities become public, culture tells us to cancel people, incarcerate them, shame them, kick them out of our lives, forget about them. It's not safe then to come clean. It's not safe to be honest. It's not safe to confess because we're going to get canceled if we do. However, Christianity says, when you confess, you'll be welcomed in be welcomed in. Here's how Eugene Peterson translates John, uh, 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 to 9 in the message when we confess. 
He says this, when we experience a shared life with one another, as the sacrificed blood of Jesus, God's son, purges all our sin. If we claim that we're free from sin, we're only fooling ourselves. A claim like that is nonsense. On the other hand, if we admit our sins and simply come clean about them, God won't let us down. He'll be true to himself. He'll forgive our sin and purge us from all wrongdoing. This is God's message to Abraham, sorry, to Adam and to Eve and to King David. This is God's message to my friend in Vancouver and to each of us. You are more sinful, more not okay than you realize. But you are more loved than you can imagine. You're more sinful than you realize and you're more loved than you can imagine. Amen and amen. And God doesn't want us to stay trapped in the toxicity that sin, iniquity, and, uh, and transgression cause. Jesus doesn't want us to even get comfortable with a hint, a tiny little bit of lust, or the contempt, or the pride. And so he has given us the gift of confession. When you confess, God welcomes you into the community of the honest. You know, the most honest group of people I've ever been part of are pornography support groups. I'm in a group right now, and if you want to be free from porn, send me an email today. Freedom is possible, and it is incredible what God can do to set you free. Now, the first group I was a part of was led by a man who had come through Alcoholics Anonymous. And he led our group of guys to be so open and honest, covering nothing up. We experience what the psalmist is talking about in Psalm 130, verse 7. We experience the steadfast love of God for each of us. Do you know this love? There's no shame in this love. We're all welcomed in and our lives are transformed. Did you know that Alcoholics Anonymous was started by a group of Christians? Christians who realized that people were powerless to get free from their addiction to alcohol without the help of God. And without the welcome of God's community. I love how New York City pastor Rich Viotas speaks about the honesty and safety of groups like AA. Viotas says this, When I think about community life in many churches, I am grieved that this kind of spirit is not found. This lack of community life in churches actually reveals the power of shame that holds individuals and communities in bondage. Whatever we cannot name reveals our bondage to shame. In the forming of honest communities like AA, we release ourselves from the fearful shame that ruins our lives. We're given a gracious space to name what many say must not be named. You see, God is not pointing any canceling fingers at you. His arms are open wide in welcome. To welcome everyone in. God is not interested in gathering a group of good-looking people who have it all together. Although I have to admit, you all are looking remarkably good this morning. God is welcoming everyone who is honest about who they are and who longs to be free from shame and sin and iniquity. God says, give up living in fear that your secrets will be found out. And pray Psalm 130. But now I don't want to mislead you. It's not easy. The Psalm 130 life 
of honest confession is hard for us in our culture. Because culture says now, but Christianity says wait. We're in a now culture. We like fast food and fast fashion. We access information instantly. There's a TED Talk and Masterclass to solve any issue you're facing. You can watch it on 1.25 speed. That's my preferred speed for watching things. But Christianity says, wait. Christianity says, waiting is good. Real good. You wouldn't know it in our fast-paced culture. The root meaning of the Hebrew word to wait means to be pulled taut, stretched, tense like a cord. It's not a stamping your foot, looking at your watch and patiently waiting. It's an active yearning for something, stretching towards something like watchmen waiting for the morning, says the psalmist. Jewish scholar Robert Alter describes the waiting of the Psalm 130. He says, the watchman, sitting through the last of the three watches of the night, peering into the darkness for the first light of dawn, cannot equal my intense expectancy for God's redeeming word to come to me in my dark night of the soul. And then Walker Barnes again. She says, it is easy and all too common to confuse watching for God as a passive acceptance of reality. But watching for God is an act of holy observation and subversive hope in the midst of turmoil, chaos, and despair. It asks, what is God doing? And what would God have us do? Waiting is good. Because God knows that his transformative work begins in our waiting. It's like this. We commit sins and transgressions and iniquity because we want the flourishing that God wants to give us, but we want it in our own way and in our own time. We're like the kid who steals candy from the gas station because he can't wait for the chocolate cake that his parents want to give him at home. In the Garden of Eden, God it was slowly maturing Adam and Eve to grow their wisdom and their godliness, to satisfy their every desire. He created them in his image to be like him. But they wanted to be like God right then and there. They did not want to wait for God in his timing. So they took, they ate the fruit. And in our own lives... God is slowly giving us, he's giving you the satisfaction and the comfort and the love and all the things you long for. That's what he's doing. But we want it now. We want it in our own way. And so we sin, we transgress, we act with iniquity in our attempt to get them now. But as we confess and wait, as we wait for God, we're forced to begin to trust God's way of doing things and God's timing. Waiting puts us in a trusting posture. And trust leads to hope. And hope, as the psalmist knows, leads to steadfast love and plentiful redemption. So give up rushing 
and wait with Psalm 130. Now, there's something peculiar about this personal confession of iniquity in Psalm 130. Do you remember what's at the beginning of the psalm? Right at the top. It's a header. Before the psalm starts, it says, a psalm of ascents. There are 15 psalms of ascent, all grouped together in the Bible. And these psalms were prayed and they were sung, not just by individuals, but by the entire nation of Israel as they gathered in Jerusalem for their major celebrations. Three times a year, people would go up to Jerusalem and they would sing these psalms together. The nation of Israel prayed Psalm 130 together. (laughs) So let me ask us, church, what would our church be like if we prayed Psalm 130 together? Or a better question, what is our church becoming as we pray this psalm together? That's a question you might want to ask your small group or your household. But let me give you one answer to get us started. We will be a community that enjoys God's grace. Grace is giving what we don't deserve. Grace is giving us what we don't deserve. And as we face the evil in our hearts and pray Psalm 130 together, God gives us what we don't deserve. He gives us his steadfast love and his plentiful redemption. Redemption means to buy back, to pay the price for. Redemption isn't something we deserve. It's an act of grace. Our sin, iniquity, and our transgression, it's as if there's this cosmic ledger where we just owe a greater and greater amount of debt to repair and all all the damage that we've done to the world. And redemption is to just buy it back. On NPR this week, I read about a charity I'd never heard of before. It's called RIP Medical Debt. I don't know if you've heard about RIP Medical Debt. It buys, also known as redeems, medical debt that people with low incomes owe hospitals. It simply forgives their medical debt. That's charity. To date, RIP Medical Debt has forgiven the medical debts of over 3.6 million people who have low incomes, totaling to over $6.7 billion. The stories of freedom and hope coming from these people are tremendous. It's incredible. Poof, your medical debt is gone. The church is made up of people who have been redeemed and forgiven like this. It's all grace. Our message is... We're a bunch of sinners. For those of you who are just exploring Christianity, maybe you're here for the first time or you're new to FBC, I'm sorry to say, you're a sinner too. But you are so welcome here. We're not pointing any canceling fingers at you because we are experiencing freedom at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. We're a bunch of sinners, saved by grace, enjoying God's grace, sharing God's grace, and you are welcome here. If I could send an email to all the people caught in scandals in our nation, all the people whose iniquity has been brought out into the public, if I could text every person who is scared and ashamed of their thoughts, their words, and their actions, this is what I would say to them. I would say there is a God who sees you and loves you still. His name is Jesus. And he shouldered all of your shame on the cross. It sounds crazy, but it's true. 
Jesus dealt with all your sin, your transgressions and your iniquity on the cross where he died and in the tomb where he rose to life. And what you are going through is not the final word on you and your life. Because death was not the final word on Jesus. Do you want to be freed from the evil that you're trapped in? Do you want to live without shame? Then confess your sin. Come to Jesus because of his amazing grace. Amen. I'd like to invite up the band, and I'd like to invite up Maddie Peterson. One of the things we're doing as a church to practice these psalms is we are praying these psalms together. Maddie's going to come up and lead us in prayer. And at the end of each section, she, she will end her section of prayer by saying, Lord, in your mercy. And that's our cue to join her by saying, hear our prayer. So, Maddie, thank you. Let's pray. Lord, it is hard to wait. Though we pray we'd see and feel the hope in you. The world seems to be in deep pain. Lord, out of the depths we cry to you. O Lord, hear our voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of the world's pleas for mercy. Help us wait for you in hope. Lord, in your mercy. We pray for our city of Davis, that whatever is dark would be made light. We pray our small city would be full of love, cast out fear. Help us wait for you in hope. Lord, in your mercy. We pray for our church, Lord, that as we wait for you, we will wait with love and hope and with you. Lord, wherever there is hopelessness, we pray you'd bring security and abundant hope. Help us wait for you in hope and see your redemption. Lord, in your mercy.